Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Well, in this episode, I have an extra special treat for you. This is part one of a two-part episode focusing on the D23 Expo 2013 that took place in mid-August of this year. Uh, I was actually planning even to get this up a week ago, but there was so much material there, so much audio that I'd captured, that it really took a long time to get through it all. But I have, and I'm bringing you, like I said, part one now of a two-part show. I was able to interview some Imagineers in the Journey into Imagineering Pavilion, and I recorded audio from several different panels and presentations. And I'm going to be pulling some clips from those things to share with you. Now, there are a lot of podcasts and a lot of blogs that covered this, but none of them really focused on what I'm focusing on, which is the stories of the people, why they do what they do, what they love about what they do, and why it's meaningful to them. So that's what you're going to get in these two episodes. Like I said, I was able to interview about a half a dozen Imagineers in the Journey into Imagineering Pavilion, which was the Parks and Resorts Pavilion, and... I also have uh, audio from the Women of Pixar presentation, Leave Them Laughing, Working with Walt, The Craft of Creativity, uh, the Disney Legends Ceremony, and some from the Richard Sherman Alan Menken concert and the conference call that I got to be on as part of the media covering the event uh, a couple days before the actual expo itself. So I'm going to break it up. And next time we're going to have half of the Imagineer interviews and the craft of creativity and working with Walt. All the rest of it's going to be in this episode. Now, because there's so much here, I don't want to make this episode go any longer than necessary. And I certainly don't want to wear you out, but I think you are really going to enjoy it. So the beginning and the end is the only extended time you're going to hear from me. There's going to be no promos for other podcasts or anything like that in here. It's just the welcome and the ending and uh, everything else is going to be the interviews and the audio I got from the presentations. I am going to pop in probably before each presentation and give you just a little bit of a, a preview of what it is that you're going to hear so you have some context for it. When I can, I'll give you a little bit of detail to help, but mostly each of these I think should stand on their own with what I have provided for you. So I hope you enjoy this. If you want to hear more about the expo itself and all the coverage and as much as that I was able to do and my wife was able to do, uh, we actually covered it also for Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast. And you can hear that on episodes 76 and 77 of that show. I'm going to go ahead and link to that in the show notes so you can get access it easily. We really had a good time and it was a pretty extensive experience. This was both of our third time coming. We've been to all of them. So check it out. It ended up being a two and a half hour interview, roughly. So that's why it's broken up into two parts. And even with that, we barely scratched the surface. So if you missed it, or if you missed any parts of it, and you're curious about what you might have missed that we got to do, then please check out Tales from the Mouse House. Meanwhile, enjoy this episode, and off we go first presentation here is from the Women of Pixar panel. There's actually two clips that I'm going to play for you. Both of them have the context that you need so you can just listen and enjoy. Unfortunately, I wasn't in there, so I don't know exactly who was answering each question, but you at least do get the answers to them. And something I forgot to mention a minute ago is, remember, all of these were recorded live, so... The audio does tend to vary somewhat in quality and volume even. I've tried to level them out and improve them as much as I can, but with the system I have, I can only do so much. I still think that you'll be able to hear them well enough and enjoy them. So here goes the women of Pixar. The triumph comes from adversity. Share with us a success or a life lesson that was born from a challenging situation in your career. I, I think some of the, the best professional experiences I've had and most personal growth are the hardest projects you work on. 
Um, I've worked on a lot of crazy shows before Pixar. Um, I think, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I, I were, I'll say I was at Warner Brothers and they were starting a division and it was a brand new division and it was traditional animation and that's a lot of people and a lot of drawing and um, a lot of learning. And that was a really, really, um, it was a hard show for a lot of people, but for me, I got to be there day to day watching that happen and I got to see people like Steve Pilcher, who's a production designer of Brave, be asked to take on more responsibility and partner with him um, and other people on taking more responsibility on that project and really seeing that, that project come together. And then it definitely struggled, but to see that team really face a really difficult situation and then really come out the other side. Um, I think I learned more on that movie than, than I would have learned on a very easy movie. Um, and I think you make bonds on, on that kind of project that you, you're just you're, you're in the war together. And so like Steve Pilcher and Mark Anders and the people that I worked with on that show, um, you got these real I'm sorry, my phone. And um, you learn a lot about yourself. I think some of the hardest projects are, are the most rewarding, maybe not creatively, but definitely personally. That was a great experience. Awesome. Galen, what advice would you give women, actually, would you give anyone who wants to get into the animation industry? <laughs> um, yeah, perseverance, tenacity, gotta have it. You gotta love it. You can't but you gotta love animation. So I guess it's not specifically true. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think that if you love animation, sometimes you can be. I was having this conversation with my daughter this morning. She's she's twelve. She says, "Mom, you know, when I grow up, I really want to work at Pixar." But I'm not a very good drawer. I said, honey, I've worked at Pixar for 23 years, and, and you know, circles and squares is pretty much where it's at for me. I can't draw that at all. It's not about whether you can draw. It takes it takes some it takes a whole it takes a village. But <laughs> <laughs> it does. It takes hundreds of people with radically different disciplines and abilities and skills and and the, really, the only thing we have in common is a passion for the project that we're working on, and hopefully we, what we try to instill also is, is a, a sense of mutual respect for each other's abilities. It's really, really important in the collaborative process. So learning that, that you can take whatever that skill is, it doesn't matter. There's a place for it within animation, and as long as you develop that to be the best it can be, and figure out how to apply it to the, to the process, and then having a huge love and respect for all of the other disciplines that come together to make make these films. I think if, if you can do that, then, then you can find a way in animation. I have a question for Mary Alice. Um, I believe you're the one who went through the countless interviews before you got hired by Pixar. How did you get through so many interviews and keep your spirit intact? How, how did I get through so many interviews? I know. <laughs> oh, it's all coming out now. Um, it was stressful. I'm not going to say it wasn't light. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I, uh, I felt very, very privileged to work there. I, I've only worked at Pixar for four and a half years, so I think I definitely came in as just a huge fan of the work. Um, and it was over It was over many months also, several different trips. But um, I would just try to talk to each person that I met with, and I think a few people here I met with and um, talk to them about the work and talk to them about me and um, it was stressful but it was it was a great experience and the interviews as many as there are people are very open it's like a half hour conversation so there were a lot of them but it was well worth it I that answers the question i have a quick interview thing to share since i only had 17 people and you had how many 24 so you beat me on that but one of my interviews was with Pete Doctor. It was while he was directing Monsters, Inc. And he had a co-director at the time, David Silverman, who was a guy from uh, The Simpsons. And when I went into Pete's office to meet with him, uh, Pete had his banjo, I think it was, and David had a tuba. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Yeah. 
putting that on, I think they sometimes just jam. <laughs> but when I arrived, um, David said, grab an instrument. And I thought musical, and I thought, oh my god, this is a test. <laughs> By the way, that was my wife asking the question in the second part of that Women of Pixar presentation. Now next up, we have some audio from Alan Menken and Richard Sherman. The first couple of clips are from the conference call. The first one is Alan Menken answering a question about what it's like to write for a Disney movie uh, or theatrical production versus possibly some of the others that he might have written for and the other things that he's done. And then the second one is Richard Sherman and Alan Menken both answering a question about what it means to them to work for the Disney company. And then I'm going to follow that with two clips from Richard Sherman from the concert, the Disney Songbook concert that was Saturday night. So there's your setup for those. Enjoy Alan Menken and Richard Sherman. The process for me is, is very much you know, the process of writing a musical. Um, and, and Disney has been the studio that has been, especially in our, in our lifetime, the most supportive of, of writing songs in that way. Um, the, where the, the, the different difference comes in, in, in it being Disney is, um, is a sense of responsibility, I think, to, you know, in terms of the message of the song and the, uh, um, the, the approach to storytelling, you, you know that um, this is a, an audience that will embrace what you do and will take it to heart entirely. And so you really kind of have to cherish the audience very much as you write these songs and and, uh, and care about them. Um, because the, the Disney tradition is, uh, it's number one, it's a great American classic tradition, and it's also... Um, um, something where you, you, you don't want to go over certain lines. You don't want to, you want to poke fun, but you don't want to poke fun in a way that's hurtful. And you, the company is very sensitive to that. Um, and once you've been associated with the company for a long time, you become very sensitive to that. But you definitely want to skate as close to that line as possible because that's where all the fun is. Well, first of all, we both have, now we can say long histories with, with the Disney organization. I had the great, superb honor of working with the genius himself, with Walt Disney, and it was a very special. I always felt honored that I was working for his for his company and for him, really, when he was with us. And uh, Alan, I know, feels the same uh, about the, the company because what it represents yeah. is... I'm in awe that you got to work with Walt. That's amazing. Uh, well, that's luckily, you know, timing is everything in this world. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I must say that Walt set a high standard for the both of us when he had these great songwriters of the past that uh, that, that wrote the great scores for Pinocchio and, and, and all these wonderful, wonderful pictures that came before our time. And before, so it was kind of a high mark for us to to work for, and I think wholesome, beautiful entertainments that uplift the spirit are very special, and and they're not depressing; they're uh, they're uplifting, and that's what's wonderful. And we're lucky to have done that kind of work. Yeah, and and also we're lucky to be involved with you know a studio that creates films that that are such a supportive platform to non-cynical material. Exactly. To, to, to things that are catchy and accessible and emotional. And, and know, there's a love affair between the audience and, and the songs in, at Disney that's 
such a unique opportunity for songwriters like us. Oh, I know. It's it's great. Well, for example, there's going to be a, a vast auditorium, and we're going to be feeling like we're singing to our relatives because everybody <laughs> loves yeah. the Disney aura and they love what we've what we've done and the films we've been involved with so uh, it's uh, you know you can't lose it's a great feeling it's great yeah it's, it's amazing well, let's talk about the disney parks a little bit the disney parks i've heard of those <laughs> 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 like we're in one of them right now and i, I want you to tell them the story you've told me this before there's there was a night that that you and elizabeth your wife elizabeth happened to be at disneyland oh, tell us that story it, it's, a, it's a very touching story. Bob and I have been on the, uh, on the staff for about three years, and we had a pet, so we could get into Disneyland any time we wanted. And my wife Elizabeth and I were at, uh, at the park one night, very late, and we had this most wonderful day. We had done all the rides, and it was just great. And at the end of the day, we just lingered on Main Street just before going out the old exit when we used to go out to the parking lot was back there. And we saw some singular figure, practically empty park, and one figure was just walking down the road, looking into the windows of the, of the stores. And I said, well, that's Walt, honey. Let's, let's tell him how much, how much fun we had tonight. So, so we waited for him to come, and he said, oh, we did come. And we were talking for a minute, and I said, Walt, we just want you to know we had the most wonderful day. It was just incredible. And at the end, when Tinkerbell was flying across the sky, the music was playing, and the Sky rockets were going on. I just started to cry like a baby. It was happy tears, but they were just coming out of my, my eyes. And he said, you know, I do it every time. And that, I, I dearly remember that because he just loved the park. He loved the things in it. He loved what it symbolized. He loved what it meant, you know, because there are happy endings. There's a good world out there. Nice, positive things. He was a very positive man. Richard, now let's talk about a song that I know is very near and dear to you. Feed the birds. Oh, feed the birds. <laughs> and there are many reasons why this is very near to us. I think the most important reason is because of the fact that uh, it's no secret. I mean, we, we love Walt Disney very much, and we were very fond of him as a human being, aside from being a great boss. And when we first played our ideas for Mary Poppins for Walt Disney, he, uh, uh, we played this song among a couple of other things that we written. That we thought would work nicely for the picture. And uh, we did a lot of talking that day. I remember at the end of this meeting, the long meeting, he said, Play me that Burley song again. So I played it again. And he said, That's the key to the whole story, isn't it? He said, That's right, well, that's it. And that's the day he put us under contract. So <laughs> he, did. he did. That was the day that he put us under contract to him. And uh, 10 greatest years of my my life and working for Walt Disney. Of course, I've even connected ever since. But this is his song. And I used to go to his office every once in a while, Bob and I on a Friday, we'd get a call. We'd come down there and we'd talk about what we were working on, of course. He knew what we were working on, but he still talked to us about it. And then he'd look out the north window and he'd say, uh, of his office, and he'd say, play it. And uh, I played it for him. Simple and few. 
Okay, next up, half of the interviews that I did in the Journey into Imagineering Pavilion. I got to talk to Imagineers from several different disciplines within Walt Disney Imagineering, and I asked each of them the same basic questions, and I really only had a couple of minutes with each one, but still, in here you're going to get about ten minutes or so of some really interesting insights, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, here are my interviews with Imagineers. Okay, so go ahead and tell me your name. Okay, uh, I'm Mark Levine. I'm a senior show writer at Walt Disney Imaginary. Fantastic. Um, so what have you worked on that really, you really enjoy or really excited about? You know, everything I do at Imaginary is really uh, different. So every project's very different and has uh, new sort of challenges. So um, I had a background writing for television before I worked at Imaginary. Um, so I started working doing things that were media-related, uh, you know, videos and films uh, for the parks. Um, but from there, I've transitioned into doing full-on lands and uh, attractions and experiences. So it's it's all every every different every project is different. Every day is different because um, Imagineering is filled with so many different disciplines. Uh, you know, I'm a writer, but I'm working with artists and architects and engineers and robotics experts, and you know, and then all those meetings you're in um, have all these different disciplines in it so it's very exciting to sort of hear the different viewpoints um, about how we're all trying to just do things for our guests that's fantastic that's very very cool Um, so what what do you enjoy most about working uh, in Imagineering Uh, again it's just sort of working with all these amazing people and really just every every project has its own challenges its own sort of exciting things to figure out and um, and just you know they take a long time to, to do these projects, so when you work through it and, and it finally opens and guests get to experience it, it's really exciting. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, and um, you, obviously you have a lot that you do that you have to pull from a lot of different resources and everything, so what inspires you? Well, I hate to keep saying the same thing. I'm inspired <laughs> by all the different people I work with. But again, each project, so right now I'm working on the Avatar project for Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, it has its own things to research and to figure out, and so every project's like that. Every project will be a different set of things you need to sort of uh, research and talk to people and, um, and go places. I mean, what we're doing here at D23 is showing how the team who's working on Avatar just went to Pandora to, uh, to do a research trip and bring things back. And so, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, Imagineers do often when they're developing a project is go places, uh, see things, and really try to make it very feel very authentic so when, we, uh, when our guests um, come to our version of it, it's going to feel very real to them. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. All right, so go ahead and tell me your name and your role in what you're doing here. I'm Jonathan Friday. I'm a designer at Imagineering and just one of the many Imagineers who've come down here to the D23 Expo to celebrate 60 years of Imagineering at Journey into Imagineering, the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts Pavilion uh, here on the show floor. Fantastic. Yeah, this is a great pavilion. You guys have obviously expanded quite a bit. Excited by all the movement around here. I mean, we have R2D2 rolling around, Captain America makes appearances, John Lasseter just left after being awed by the things happening at the Adventure Trading Company. We brought really exclusive artwork in our art library. We we joke that since we couldn't bring all of our guests up to Glendale to our top secret headquarters, we just packed up Glendale and brought it here. <laughs> so we've got all sorts of departments represented here as Imagineers are kind of showing off the things that they do every day. Great. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels a little bit more open and, and uh, you know, kind of interactive, if you will, than previous years. But, you know, the previous years have been great, too. So um, what have you brought that you think, you know, wow, this is so different from past years that, uh, you know, we just, we got to get people in here to see this. I can't pick one thing. Some of the most amazing things you're going to find in every single booth. One of my favorite pieces is we brought down the original Peter Ellen Shaw painting of Disneyland that Walt Disney showcased in black and white back on the Disney TV show. Excuse me, Disneyland TV show. The amazing thing about it is under white light, you see a daytime view of the park. 
when you turn on black lights, Peter Ellenshaw actually overpainted in black light, and so you see it displayed in an entirely different way as a nighttime view of the park. And to my knowledge, we've never actually shown that anywhere inside of the United States except at Walt Disney Imagineering. And so to be able to show it to our fans here under white light and black light is truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And then all over the place, you've got teasers for Star Wars, Avatar, Disney Springs coming to the Walt Disney World Resort, My Magic Plus. We have a little bit of everything. It's a lot of action, a lot of excitement. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. It is. We're going to find out. So, um... With the stuff that you do in Imagineering, uh, what is most exciting to you? What do you enjoy the most? You know, actually what we're seeing right now is some of my favorite moments. Seeing guests enjoying things that we've designed and built and brought to life is is priceless. I, we were all stunned when we watched a really small boy in a Captain America costume come up and meet Captain America and flex his muscles too. And just seeing those smiles, it makes it all worth it. All the hours that have gone into designing these magical family experiences. It's so incredible for us. So seeing everything happening around us is one of my favorite parts of the process. Oh, that's fantastic. And you don't get that very often, really. Well, every time we open a a resort, every time I go to the Disneyland Park, I get to know I had a small part in that. uh, And that's a lot of fun. Okay, great. That's awesome. So then one more question, and this might be the same answer, but... Uh, you know, with all that you have to draw from and, and all the different sources and everything, um, is there anything in particular, either a physical thing or people or or an idea or anything that inspires you? What inspires us? This might sound cliche, but a lot of longtime Imagineers, when asked why they've been with us for so long, have said it's the people. That Imagineering has 140 different disciplines. We have engineers and graphic designers and show writers and technical directors and artists. We have all of these disciplines all working together to make all of this magic happen. And seeing what other people do is so inspiring. Because as a designer, I don't necessarily understand all the mechanics that our ride engineers are putting into these vehicles. But I can see they're going really fast and putting on an awesome show. And so seeing that kind of magic happening inside of our buildings all the time is part of the excitement that I'm excited to share with everyone here. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate sure. it. That's it. So can you tell me uh, what your name is and what your role in Imagineering is? Um, my name is Ashley Cole and I am a color and paint specialist. Wonderful. Okay, so of the things that you've worked on so far or are working on now, what do you enjoy the most or what have you been most excited about being involved in? The best part about my job is that you get to work on everything. You get to, We service all the portfolios, so it, it's all really exciting. And because we do all the different styles from Fantasyland to Tomorrowland, you know, it, that variety makes it really awesome all the time. Okay, great. Um, so, what do you enjoy most, and it might be the same answer, but what do you enjoy most about working for Imagineering, or working for Disney, like being a part of Disney? Well, the pe- I mean, first, the people. I work with an incredible team of people, and I am surrounded by these amazing artists and designers and creators and facilitators all day long, and that in itself is inspiring. The next thing is that, you know, I joke, but it's the truth. I color all day long, and it's, I mean, what more could a girl ask for? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> that, that must have been a tough sell in the job description. Yeah, really you have was. to color. Really was. <laughs> That's kind of like a self-proclaimed job description. It's not the technical job description. <laughs> I'm sure they made it sound fancy. Oh, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But basically what we do is color all day long. <laughs> Works for me. Inside or outside the lines. <laughs> Take a pick. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so then with all the things that you work on, and obviously you have to draw from a lot of different sources and, and uh, you know places to, to come up with what you do. Um, so what inspires you? That's hard. You know, it's like, it's so generic, but everything. You know, like I said, the people. The people really inspire me, and the spirit really inspires me. And the reactions. You know, when you have had a rough week at work, and you go to the park, and you see people like, oh, look at that. Oh, the kids and their eyes. And like the, there's nothing better. There's really nothing better. Very, very nice. Very cool. Um, I didn't mention this ahead of time, so if we if you want me to cut this out, I can. But I'm just, just wondering if there's any project or anything that you've worked on that you know, when you go to the park and you see it and you see people you know, react to it, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that thing. Well, I'm kind of a new kid, you know, as okay. far as these things go. You know, so, and it takes quite a long time, like the gestation period of the theme park. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm not really yet seeing, you know, the big picture, like the big finished building, fruits of your labor kind of thing. Uh-huh. But 
I tell you what, even from the process, you know, start to where we are now, and a lot of, you know, the projects we're working on, how it grows and gains momentum, and that, that is so cool. And so I can only imagine that feeling that I'll feel when, like, I'm standing, you know, in front of that building that we finished finally. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, next up was one of my favorite presentations, and it was actually the last one we went to. This was Leave Them Laughing, and it was moderated by Dave Fisher, who is a current Imagineer, and also on the panel were other current Imagineers, George Scribner, Jason Sorrell, Joe Lan Cicero, and Kevin Rafferty. Uh, I've got four clips here for you. I'm going to try to remember these more or less in order and lay them out. Uh, the first one is George Scribner, and a little bit of, I think, Kevin Rafferty talking about the way that gags play out in attractions, and particularly about the genius of Mark Davis as he worked on them and kind of taught people, in many cases, how to do these kind of gags. Uh, then we also have Jason Sorrell talking about Pirates of the Caribbean and the Florida uh, interactive attraction that just recently opened that he worked on for that followed that by um, Jason Sorrell talking again, this time, about the christening of the Disney Fantasy cruise ship and some of his uh, experience with that and some of the fun stuff he did there. And then we wrap this one up with Kevin Rafferty talking about some of the things that didn't make it into It's Tough to Be a Bug and Why. Um, there's definitely some laughter in here, including from me, but hey, I think it's part of the experience. I think if you were there, you would have been laughing too. So let's let them take it away. Here was a gag that I had come up with where Donald was on top of Mount Vesuvius, and Vesuvius goes off and burns him with a hot dog in his hand. And he goes up there to Mount Vesuvius to make a charred hot dog. Well, it doesn't read from the front. The master of somebody like Mark Davis was understanding that a gag reads from the side, uh, that things read in profile. And the, these guys were masters at it. I mean, you, like to Joe's point, it had to read really, really, really quickly for the gag to pay off. Well, especially since, you know, we're all in, it's about the brevity of storytelling on our attractions. Right. We could have a four minute, a five minute, an eight minute attraction, so you have to cram as much in there as you possibly can. Including hot dogs and fire. And you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is kind of a funny thing too, because you know, it's this new attraction that's based on these movies that star Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask any kid, right? Um, somebody who had the opportunity to actually create an attraction based on the Pirates of the Caribbean movies is sitting down here. It's down in Florida, Disney's Hollywood Studios. Anybody been on it? And he actually got a chance to work with the Johnny Depp. Jason? Yeah, that was uh, easily one of the highlights of my career. The, the challenge there was, you know, you're, you're trying to replicate the Captain Jack Sparrow character, and unlike in the attraction where he's represented as an audio animatronics figure, this was going to be Johnny as Captain Jack as a filmed image, so we really had to work hard to come up with a script that would feel like it was uh, from the world of the films. Um, and one of the things that was interesting was that he actually, because we had one meeting where, where we all got really scared because they said, uh, Johnny's lawyer called and he's rewriting the script. And we had no idea what they, that meant. I was ready to have myself committed because I didn't, you know, I'm like, okay, my career's over. Johnny Depp hates what I'm doing and, and that's going to be it. But when we got to the set, it just, he had just little tiny little wordsmithing changes and just little touches of Captain Jack here and there. And I just found him to be incredibly collaborative. And one of the highlights of, of my career was standing behind the set with Johnny Depp. And then um, as the voice of the talking skull, we had James Arnold Taylor, who's a great improv comic. Clone Wars fans, I see. Um, and it just the opportunity to sit back there improving with him, coming up with material. But he kind of had his revenge, though, because we found out after the attraction opened, we have um, two entrances for Captain Jack that are variable, depending on which show you see. And in one of them, he's chasing the redhead up the steps from below decks, and, and he kind of whispers something into her ear, and, and she belts him one, you know, just like we're accustomed to, to having to seeing Captain Jack get slapped. Based on a Mark Davis drawing, probably. Exactly. Probably. Exactly. No, you're right. Um, what we found out later was he, he actually said something audible, and we're like, oh, okay, that's fine. He came up with his own improv. Um, my original line was, I can see why they want the redhead. 
and, you know, which is a callback to the attraction. She smacks him, good line. But, but he said his own line, and we found out later that it was actually slang for something that you would not want to have happen <laughs> in a Disney park. <laughs> oh. So the slap was for real. So, so we all get called into a meeting, and we find out what this means, and we're all like, huh. <laughs> that little scamp. <laughs> <laughs> that little owner of a Caribbean island of his own scam. <laughs> so we actually had to go in and, and, and turn down the volume so it's just like he's coming in muttering something, or which works just as well because the, the suggestion is clearly he's saying something suggestive. So the slap still works, but uh, he, he tried to have a little fun with us just like he did with the yeah. studio. But uh, if you see it, it I, I think it really turned out well. He did a great job uh, bringing Captain Jack to life. The other thing I learned from it, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, you know, at, at Disney, we're, we pride ourselves on coming up with timeless humor and things that keep you in the story, you know, that are true to the character. My favorite line in that show is when, uh, at the end of it, every, the guests have prevailed, everyone uh, is made a pirate, a member of the Black Girl. He goes, congratulations, mates, you're all pirates. I come back in eight minutes and we'll do it all over again. <laughs> And it's funny because like, I, I was so happy with that and then I'm like, but does that break the fourth wall? Does it take people out of the show? And the way I rationalized it with myself is this guy is so drunk out of his gore 99% of the time, we don't know what he means that it, and it would work on both levels. We somehow lured Jerry Seinfeld into uh, what, what, cruise ship, right? Yeah, I was uh, working for Imagineering Creative Entertainment at the time and, and I wrote the script for the christening of Joe's fantasy. And by fantasy, I mean... What about the show? <laughs> 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 I was hoping No, but uh, we knew going in that the ship was going to be christened in New York, and it was important, actually, to, to Bob Iger to make the whole thing a, a celebration of, of New York, uh, home of the Grand Age of the Ocean Liner. So we wanted to create an experience that had virtually all New York talent. Uh, we got Neil Patrick Harris to, to host the show, you know, beloved host of the Tonys. Um, and in one of the first meetings, I said, wouldn't it be great if we could get Jerry Seinfeld to come out and do a set? And, and everyone thought, there's no way, it's not going to happen. But I wrote him in. I, I wrote some sample material. Gave him a call. Pardon me? Gave him a call. Said, yeah, I call it Jerry, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Who's um, this? What, what kid, who are you? King of Hitler. Um, but it was interesting because it, he, I think, had registered with him that this was going to be a major New York moment, so he agreed to do it. But the point is, I, I took a, a leap and actually wrote a, the first 30 seconds for him. And I thought, well, it would be hysterical. He's the highest paid comedian on the planet. He plays sellout arenas you know, every, every night of the year. Um, and we've got him playing a cruise ship. And I don't know if you know much about the stand-up comedy business, <laughs> but if you're appearing on a cruise ship, it's not exactly an indication that things are going well. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I wrote a, a little bit for him, and it, it turned out that, that he liked it. And uh, the, again, one of the highlights of my career, it's just a stupid little thing, but I wrote the intro for Neil to say to him, and, and he said, um, I can only pray that the world of syndication is a tenth as kind to me as it has been to our next guest, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld theme comes up, Jerry comes up, and he comes out and he goes, I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat! Finally, I get a chance to see what the end of my career will be like! And then he looks around at, our, at Joe's gorgeous ship, and he goes, you know what, it isn't so bad. <laughs> So, while we're on It's Tough to Be a Bug, sometimes the funniest things never appear on the screen. Uh, one of the things you don't see on It's Tough to Be a Bug was one of Kevin's favorite gags, right, Kevin? Oh, yeah. This is the story of, for those of you old enough to remember, there was a show on TV uh, hosted by Jim Lang, The Dating Game. And there was a segment in It's Tough to Be a Bug called The Mating Game. And instead of the fake flowers on the set, there were real flowers on the set. And I was, you know, right in the middle of pitching this idea to Michael Eisner. There was a couple of funny things to Michael Eisner. And, uh, and I got to the point of the Mated Games sequence. And da 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 Bachelorette number one likes to hang around in old wood piles, the Black Widow Spider. Bachelorette number two, and it was, it was the praying mantis. There's all these horrible bugs that do horrible things to you. And then, and Flick said, uh, so, and, and, uh, 
our bachelor is, uh, lives in Ant Island, and, and so there's a big introduction, and Flick the Ant! And so Flick has his first question, and he says, So, so, bachelor at number one, we've had our first romantic interlude, what next? And she says, I bite your head off and suck your guts out. <laughs> and Michael said, no, wait, no. No, we can't do that. And I said, why not, Michael? And he said, because an ant would not date a spider. <laughs> you know, talking animals. You know, of course. Yeah. I love how he zeroed in on that particular point. Yeah, yeah, That's right, just right. absurd. <laughs> I'm amazing I didn't get that note during making Oliver and Company. A dog can't talk to a cat. I'd say we'd be on the sequel, the fourth version. A dog can talk to a giraffe. <laughs> my theory is, and I don't know if the rest of my panel agrees here, but logic has killed more great guys. <laughs> Whenever I hear logic in a meeting, I get a rash. <laughs> I have to leave the room, so I'm a big fan of logic. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Now, next up, and last for this episode, last for part one, is four segments from the Disney Legends Ceremony. Now, in case you're not aware, it's only in 2009 that they started doing this in public. Until then, it was always a private ceremony on the Disney Studio lot in Burbank. But now they're doing it at the D23 Expo every two years, and this is always the not-to-miss presentation for me. And this year was definitely no exception and definitely not a letdown at all. It completely lived up to my expectations and my hopes. So what I have for you, first of all, is a portion of Billy Crystal's acceptance speech. Next is a portion of, in fact, it might actually be all of, now that I think about it, Tony Baxter's acceptance speech. And if you've ever ridden uh, Star Tours or Big Thunder Mountain Railroad or any of a number of other attractions. He is one of the principal Imagineers that you have to thank for that. Then finally, I have one that I definitely included a longer segment, but I think it's a really important one. Um, First is Bob Iger, the president and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, introducing, doing his portion of the the introduction for Glenn Keane. Now, Glenn Keane was an animator at the Walt Disney Studios. He just recently retired, and uh, he is responsible for character animation for such characters as the Beast and Ariel, most recently uh, Rapunzel from Tangled, and many, many others. And generally, I left out what... Uh, Tom Bergeron and Bob Iger said about these people as they were being introduced, but I really wanted you to hear what Tom, or excuse me, what Bob had to say about Glenn Keane. And then following that is most, if not all, of Glenn's acceptance speech. It was one of the most meaningful and powerful to me, and the one that I thought best fit with stories of the magic and what this show is all about. I'd actually love to get Glenn on for an interview sometime. But in the meantime, I wanted you to at least hear his Legends acceptance speech. So enjoy these four clips, and then I will be back at the end of that to wrap it up. You know, I grew up, as a lot of us did, watching Walt Disney, the Mickey Mouse Club, on our black and white television. And I so remember watching Mr. Disney show us on film the beginning of the building of Disneyland and the importing of these palm trees and the building of the, of the train station. And I'm watching it on black and white television going, oh, if I could only get there someday. And so that someday has happened. And walking around the park last night with my kids and my grandkids, I got this very overwhelming feeling of being part of the Disney family. And um, it really means a great deal to me to be, to be part of this group uh, being called Legends. Um, you know, it's an amazing thing. My favorite movie is Pinocchio. My favorite characters are Jiminy Cricket. And Dopey. Because that's how I look most of my teenage years. I had a crush on Beautiful Annette Funicello. I wanted to go to camp with Spin and Marty. But the great thing about all of these shows and the important thing about all of these shows and why this award means so much to me is that we all sat down as a family and watched them together. Yeah. And now with the way 
with the way that we watch television, the way that television is delivered to us, families very rarely sit down and watch the same show together. So I think that's a heritage that I'm trying to, you know, keep going with, with my family now because it's so important that we do this together. Um, I love being Mike Wazowski. Well, at this point, I guess it's okay to talk about the secrets for success. And that's what I'm going to speak about today. So bear with me. You know, at 12, you're clever enough to fully engage the wonder around you, but you're still naive enough to believe that everything you can imagine is possible. It's what gets imprinted in your mind at that year of being 12 that can guide your visions through the rest of your life. When I was 12, Disneyland unveiled a world that was made up of monorails and submarines and bobsleds, concepts that a 12-year-old growing up here in Orange County never dreamed he'd be able to interact with. In 1968, when Steve Jobs was 12, Kubrick's film 2001 opened a door to a future of talking computers where iPad-like devices served up content right along with dinner on the dining table. During my career, the movie Big became kind of a Bible. Uh, written by Ann Spielberg and Gary Ross, it celebrates the creative importance of being 12. Big features a boy masquerading as an adult thrust into the creative heart of a toy company. It's a cautionary tale pitting corporate acceptance of childhood delight against the social norms and business protocol. I've been fortunate enough to have spent my career in an organization that encourages that ability to dive back into childlike wonder with the hope that it's going to bring forth transformative thinking and playful ideas. And I think he is one of them. <laughs> uh, when Journey into Imagination's Figment asks, what will we do next, Dreamfinder? That is the child inside me living out that simple childlike, uh, excuse me, that's the child inside me looking for yet another challenge. In Star Wars, I, that's a surprise visitor here. Even though he's on the dark side, that's okay. <laughs> In Star Tours, the original pilot, Rex, aims for the Death Star, hollering, I've always wanted to do this! And that's me, living out those simple childlike dreams and hoping that everyone on board shares them too. I really want to thank this organization for cultivating a place where it is okay to think this way. It has made it possible for me to take all of you along on some of the wildest rides in the universe. <laughs> Cheers. It's impossible to define Glenn's artistry or measure his contributions to Disney animation. And even among the world's greatest animators, he stands apart. Glenn draws, and he does it with such talent and such heart, his creations come to life with great soul and depth and wonder. There is something truly magical about creating life with nothing more than a pen and paper. Glenn spent his career at Disney doing it over and over and over again. And even though he retired last year, he keeps on drawing because it's just who he is. And he keeps mentioning new artists, mentoring new artists, sharing his gift and ensuring his particular brand of magic can continue. And for that, we are all grateful. Glenn was a creative force behind an exceptional era of Disney animation, a period fondly called our second golden age, giving us extraordinary characters and stories. He says his inspiration for some of his most famous works came from the people he loves most, and that's his family. And some of Ariel's most, most important characteristics came from Glenn's wife. Now you'll explain that. Tarzan's grace, surfing through the vines, came from watching his son on a skateboard. His inspiration for Rapunzel came from his daughter. Glenn always says he put a bit of himself in the beast. It must be the character's compassionate side because aside from his formidable artistic talent, Glenn has always been known for his gentle ways and his infinite kindness. Glenn represents the best of Disney animation and quite frankly, the best of Disney, period. We are forever in his debt for giving us some of the most beautiful and most memorable characters ever drawn so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a true Disney artist, Disney legend, Glenn And it's an incredibly humbling thing uh, to see people respond uh, 
to the work that I've done. Um, I love characters that believe the impossible is possible. I love animating a character that has this burning desire inside, uh, that believes that even though something is, is as crazy as a mermaid, thinking that she can one day walk on legs and, and win the love of that handsome prince or, or the beast, to believe that somebody could look deeper in, inside than his ugly exterior and fall in love with him. I mean, that, it's a fairy tale. And that seems impossible. But I think what makes Disney so incredibly wonderful is that it has the courage to put fairy tales out there and say, yes, this seems impossible, doesn't it? But it is. It is possible. And I know I live that. I mean, my portfolio, like we, we spoke about, went to this, the wrong school. And somehow, it was the right school. But I didn't choose it. And I do believe that the very best things in life are those things that we can't really earn, but they're a gift. They're a gift from, from God to, at that right moment, it's given. And I went into the wrong school, supposedly. And I, and I thought, well, animation, this is like a combination of all the arts. I'm gonna be an animator. And then I looked at Disney animation, and I, I knew I could never be able to draw like that. I saw Mark Davis's animation of Sleeping Beauty, and I just remembered the exquisite lines and the beauty, and I thought, I don't draw like that. I, I kind of scribble. I, I, I can't do that. And so my summer job, I, I thought, well, I know I can't work at Disney, but I'll, I'll work on uh, some Saturday morning show. And by the end of that summer, the boss said, um, Glenn, you're, you're going to go back to school, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, that's good, because if you weren't, I'd fire you because you're drawing like a three-year-old. <laughs> and at 19, I, I felt like I did draw like a three-year-old, but to have somebody say it, I was, was so disheartened. And, but something happened where I, I heard that Disney was training. And so I came in very sheepish one day into the halls of Disney Animation. I'll never forget the smell of the, those legendary halls. I mean, it had the smell of pencil shavings, cigarettes, and scotch. It was just wonderful, <laughs> wonderful artistic incense. <laughs> and I walked in there and I showed my portfolio to Eric Larson, one of Walt Disney's nine old men. And kind of a big, big belly on Eric, a respectable, grandfatherly type. I mean. When you have a big belly like that, you always have a choice where you put your belt. You know, truck drivers have it down here. Respectful grandfathers hold that belt. And that was Eric. But I showed Eric my portfolio, and, and he started moving through these, looking for some potential. Moving faster. I spent three months on that drawing. And, and not somehow. All these drawings that I thought I, I put my heart and soul into, he found nothing. And then he stopped on this one little drawing. And I wasn't even going to put it in there. It was truly a scribble. Just really quick. He looked at that. And I thought, oh, I knew I shouldn't have put that in there. <laughs> then he kept going all the way through. And he came back to that. Can you do more like this? <laughs> you like that? I think there's something here. And it was just this fast little ink sketch. And I, I knew, well, that's what I do. I mean, that's me. I can, I can do that. He said, if you can do more like that, maybe we can work with you. And I, I came into Disney and started to work with these great mentors, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, Eric Larson, Ward Kimball, Willie Breitherman, just great teachers. And bit by bit by bit, it grew. And really, that impossible dream really did come true for me. Uh, and I am so thankful. It doesn't happen by yourself. When I saw that animation of Disney animation, and I thought, I can't do that. I was right. You can't do it alone. You need other artists around you. The directors that gave me the opportunities, the assistants that helped me, my mentors, 
my father bringing me up, the inspiration of my wife, Linda, and my, my children and grandchildren. Uh, I am so thankful, so, so blessed, and I just want to say, long live Disney Animation. That brings us to the end of this week's show. Come back next week for part two of my D23 Expo coverage. I hope you enjoyed this, and there's a lot more to come. And in fact, next time you'll get to hear from four people who worked with Walt Disney and some clips from them talking about what that was like. Between them and the new people in the craft of creativity and some of the ones I got to talk to in the Imagineering Pavilion, I think that you're in for a real treat next week, too. I'd like to ask for you to provide some feedback to me. I have a question, and I want to know what you want. I have two interviews already recorded and ready to go. Uh, Well, I have to edit them, but the recording is ready to go. The first one is going to be a two-part interview. The second one is going to be a three-part interview. Hopefully within about the next two or three weeks, I'm going to have another probably one-part interview. So I know I've got five, hopefully six episodes of content once we get through the expo portion. What I want to know from you is how you want me to release those. There's two different options I can think of, and if you've got another idea, let me know. But here's the two that I can think of. Before I tell them to you, actually, let me tell you why I'm thinking this. As you know, it can be difficult to try to schedule interviews, and since this is an entirely interview-based show, often the release schedule is based on how often I can get interviews and how quickly I can get those edited. And so that means sometimes I'll have several in a row, but then I might have a gap of a few weeks or so because of trying to coordinate schedules or something like that. So these are the two options I can think of. One is I take what I've got and I just continue to release it on a weekly basis. And when I run out of what I have, if it's going to be a little while before I can get another one scheduled and released, then so be it. And whenever I have that next one, I release it. The other option is to build in a week break in between interviews. So, for example, I have this two-parter coming up, and then I put in a one-week break. And then there's the three-parter, and I put in a one-week break. That gives a little bit more cushion for getting the next scheduled and the next, you know, then edited and released. And you know after you hear the last part of an interview with someone, there's going to be a week break, and then the next one's going to come. That gives a little bit more cushion to try to get more of these interviews done. But I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to do it. So please email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com. Go to storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment in the show notes for this episode. Or call me at 734-23-STORY and let me know which way you would prefer to hear it. While we're on the subject of calling and leaving feedback and emailing and that sort of thing... Uh, I would love to hear from you. If you have any positive stories of some special time that you had as a guest at a Disney theme park, or you just appreciate somebody from the Disney Cruise Line, or you want to say a thank you to the Imagineers, whatever the case may be, please call 734-23-STORY, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com, or go to the storiesofthemagic.com website and leave a comment on the show notes for an episode. And if it's feedback like that, then I'd be happy to include it in a listener feedback segment. If you have worked for the Walt Disney Company and you'd like to share something similar or you'd like to share something special that a guest did for you, uh, please follow those same methods to do that. Or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please call or email me and let me know that and we'll see what we can arrange. Please like the show on uh, Facebook. It's facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic. And most of all, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you can. The more ratings that we have and the better ratings that we have, the more likely this show is going to show up for people as they search for it. And then they get to experience these things as well. Now, one more thing before I do the final wrap up here. And that is, I have the full audio from most of these presentations that I'm sharing here from the D23 Expo. So if there's any that you hear part of and you'd like to hear more of it, maybe even the whole thing, let me know. And if I get enough response for certain ones, I might do special episodes where I release all of the audio for a particular panel or presentation. Meanwhile, that brings us to the end of this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale, of which there are many, 
continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.